I know that uh, for those of you who have been here any time at all, uh, when I mention the name C.S. Lewis, uh, you uh, know that that's hardly a name that um, gets mentioned infrequently uh, by me. Um, Lewis, in case you're not familiar with him, um, was a Renaissance and medieval literature professor at Oxford and Cambridge, a renowned expert in his field, and really most likely would have been well known uh, simply for his expertise in those arenas, uh, just standing alone in, the, in those things. But of course, that's not really why he is known as one of the brightest scholars and thinkers and storytellers of the 20th century. The reason he is known in, in those ways are because of some other works uh, outside of his labors there in Oxford and Cambridge, such things as the screw tape letters, such things as the Narnia stories. No doubt, no few of you are familiar with those. Then there was mere Christianity. And mere Christianity, you may not know this, actually had its origins in a series of radio addresses on the BBC during the 1940s. And that was where mere Christianity, the book, came from, were those radio broadcasts on the BBC. I want to read you one particular excerpt uh, from this. It's actually in in your quotes and notes there, uh, the one by Lewis. Now, what was the sort of hole man had got himself into? He had tried to set up on his own, to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms, laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That is the only way out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. Now, repentance is no fun at all. It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. Let me summarize that. Sometimes turning around, going full speed astern, is the only way to go ahead. It's the only way to actually make any progress to repent, an absolutely essential thing in the Christian life. Those are, those are words well worth hearing, well worth considering, and it is... It is a precarious thing, it is a dangerous thing to believe that somehow we are an exception to this, that somehow we don't need to consider the need to repent. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26 and 27. Uh, The text that we're looking at here this morning bridges uh, the end of 26 and into the uh, beginning of 27, we're gonna, this is uh, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the first four books of the New Testament. So Matthew is the first of the Gospels, Matthew 26, starting in verse 69, and then reading over into chapter 27, verse 10, okay? So starting in 26, 69, and moving on over into 27, 10. Hear now God's word. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. 
After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that we could be here this morning. And first off, we ask that you would please protect our hearts for any pride in being here. Uh, there are a lot of empty seats in this room. So we pray that you'd protect us from the folly and the arrogance of thinking ourselves to be better than those who are not here. And the same as pertaining to other churches in this community who felt like the best response would be not to meet this morning. We ask that you would protect our hearts from such pride and, and foolish arrogance as thinking ourselves to be better, be more worthy servants of you, more serious in our love and discipleship. The moment we think that, the moment we have just cut the legs out from underneath any claim towards that, we are just yours, and we are just here, and may that be enough. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to be here. Um, we have a building. We have the health to be here in this moment. And we are thankful. Uh, we are thankful that you've given us the desire to be here. We wouldn't have that were it not for your grace. We wouldn't have the ability to discern and understand a thing in your scriptures, were it not for your grace. We see your grace and the necessity of your mercy all over the text that we just read. It is exploding, just emanating wave upon wave out of these words. And we ask that you would help us to receive such mercy and grace and know that how desperate we are in need of it ourselves. We pray that you'd help us to hear Oh, would you help us to hear, every one of us in this room, 
I pray in your name. Amen. Wisdom can be found in many places, sometimes surprising places. So in a 2018 commencement speech, USA soccer player Abby Wambach said this uh, as she was encouraging the graduating class at Bernard College to look to each other as something of a pack to create one collective heartbeat as, as a unit, as, as, as a one, with rules for your team to live by. And one of those rules was to turn failure into fuel. This is how she put it. Here's something the best athletes understand, but it seems like a hard concept for non-athletes to grasp. Non-athletes don't know what to do with the gift of failure, so they hide it, pretend it never happened, reject it outright, and they end up wasting it, she said. Failure is not something to be ashamed of. It's something to be powered by. Now, there's a lot of good insight in that. There really is. There's a lot of great insight there, especially when it comes to goal setting and skill improvements and individual resolutions. The problem with that is it only takes you but so far. That kind of insight and that kind, that kind of wisdom. It doesn't help you when it comes to matters of what I'll call deep failure. Deep failure. That is to say, failure that takes you beyond re reflection and sorrow on your finite uh, capabilities, uh, personal disappointments, but rather failure that forces you to reckon with something within you that has to do with character deficiencies in yourself, that has to do with relational pain that you, you know you are very much mixed up in and have contributed to. Failure doesn't fuel you much there. You've got nothing to tap into just in the failure in and of itself, in, in, in that. So what do you do? Where do you go in deep failure? Well, the gospel is good news for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which is this, that Jesus knows and loves us so well. He knows and loves us so well. He knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He knows how prone we are to not just occasional but repeated systemic deep failure. And he loves us such that he has not left us to just wander around in the woods to figure it out for ourselves to muddle through and do the best that we can. He's not left us there, not in any way at all. Jesus knows our wayward hearts, and he calls us to a path of repentance. He knows our wayward hearts, and he calls us to a path of repentance. Now, what does that path look like? You can see it in the text this morning, what we just read. In a case study, two apostles... The story of two apostles, Judas and Peter. Three things that we see here regarding repentance that are well worth noting. First, why is repentance needed? Second, what does repentance look like? And third, where does repentance lead? Okay, so those three things, it's there in your outline. 
Why is it needed? What does it look like? Where does it lead? We see all those things here in this text. Let's look at this together. So first, why is it needed? Let's consider first Judas and, and, and the, the record, the account. What do we see? Well, let's go back earlier in Matthew 26, just a few hours before what we read uh, a little while ago. Matthew 26, verses 14 and 15, the actual moment of betrayal. Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So just keeping in mind the context, the overall context, the flow of events, how did we get here? So with Palm Sunday and the cleansing of the temple and Jesus' teaching, in particular that week, the religious officials there in Jerusalem had had enough. They'd had enough. And Judas was giving them just what they wanted, just when they wanted it. Now, we don't know exactly why Judas did what he did. The gospel writers are not really explicit on that point, probably for some intentionality there, no no doubt, no doubt. Uh, Supposals, reasonable guesses, perhaps, Greed, we know, has something to do with it. When you read the text, we see that Judas has his hand in the till. He is embezzling from the funds of the group. We know that. Greed has a factor. Likely, disillusionment with Jesus also has a factor in there, is a factor in there as well. Likely, Judas um, disagrees, if you can imagine this, disagrees with Jesus as to Jesus' vision as to what the kingdom was and what it means for the kingdom to come and is trying to force Jesus' hand towards some form of political movement, a a, a revolution of of some kind, given likely what Judas' understanding of the kingdom was meant to be. Whatever it was, whatever combination of factors it was, Judas sells Jesus out. Judas sells Jesus out. That's Judas' betrayal. That's the historical record. Peter's denial. What do we see there? The the, the record from Matthew and then weaving in some other things from the other Gospels. Peter starts off well. Let's let's not ignore that. He starts off well. Initially, he is holding to his claims of loyalty. Remember he said, I will not deny you, even though if all the others do, 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 I won't. And and in fact, what what do we see here with Peter? He's following Jesus right there into the chief priest's Uh, domicile, the courtyard there. He's actually putting himself at personal risk, he and John. John is there as well. John's the guy that got him in. Peter's putting himself in harm's way in being there. He starts off well, but he caves. He caves. Apparently, he's trying to, to blend in there, and that's going fine up until up until trouble begins when one of the servant girls recognizes him somehow in the flow of events, knows who this man is, calls him out. Peter tries to slip away, he says, into an entranceway, away from the courtyard, away from the fire where all the people are gathered. And another servant girl, maybe those two had compared notes, we don't know, another servant girl recognizes him. And then finally, about an hour later, the bystanders, others who are gathered around, some men, we believe, they recognize him and really call him out. And so Peter now, he then moves from just denying, kind of in a, a sly way, a, a, just a denial, 
to making an oath to actually calling down a curse upon himself if he is lying. It's really quite, quite striking. Now, why does Peter do this? The fear of man. The fear of man. That's why he did what he did. Now, where did this fear take him? Well, I don't want to pile on Peter, but we do need to press into this and consider this. Um, Peter denies Jesus repeatedly, solemnly, vehemently from a position of leadership, despite Jesus having warned him that this was coming, and despite Peter's own strong statements that he would never do it. All of which speaks to the danger, the real and present danger of self-confidence, of too much and an inordinate amount of self-confidence. And my friends, that's why, looking at Judas and looking at Peter, repentance is necessary. These two men, in essence, stand as representatives for all of us, representatives of the whole human race, showing us something as to why repentance is necessary. So some of you may know, about a century ago, the London Times sent out an inquiry to many different authors, well-renowned authors of the day, and they wanted to, to gather their, their input, their answer to this question, and then publish it in, in the Times. And the question was simply this, what's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton, one of the brightest of the, in that day, a pithy little response he sent back in. In answer to your question, what's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That pretty well sums it up for all of us. What's wrong with the world today? We are. What makes repentance necessary? We do. My heart, your heart, the conditions of our hearts. We sin because we are sinners. We stand in a state of rebellion against God's rule. It's in our spiritual DNA. Uh, we have fallen. That's why we speak of a fall. We've fallen from the highest of heights down to the, 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 the deepest of, of, of depths. The, uh, the operating system has a virus. The mirror is cracked all the way through. That's what makes it necessary for every one of us, for every single one of us. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that and calls us to a path of repentance. So that's why it's necessary. That's, that's the first point. Now, the second is this. What does it look like then? What does it look like? Well, we see that here in the, in the text as well. And the first thing we need to recognize is, looking at Judas... 
Repentance is much more than just a change of feelings. It involves that, but that's not enough. It is much more than a change of feelings. Let's look at verse 3, 20, chapter 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, this, this word in the Greek, and I don't want to bore you here this morning with a Greek tutorial, but there's two words, and it's important because they're very, very, they, they seem similar, but they're, they're very different. The word that's translated here in the ESV uh, changed his mind. The Greek word is metamelomai, metamelomai, which literally means to regret, to be full of remorse, okay, to change your feelings, to change your feelings. Well, that's the extent of Judas's remorse. His feelings changed towards what he had done. What had he done? Betray Jesus. He felt one way about it before. He feels another way about it now. But the dynamics of his heart haven't changed at all. Where does he go with his remorse? Not to Jesus, but to the enemies of Jesus to try and offload his guilt in the easiest way he possibly can. That's, that's what he's thinking. Judas is not broken in any way at all. His remorse is at a surface level. It is not deep in any way at all. There's no repentance. There's no turning here. He's just sorry. You see something very different with Peter. Something profoundly different with, with Peter not just a change of feeling, but a change of heart. This moves you from the Greek word metamelomai to metanoeo. Metanoeo. See how similar they sound? It's a change of something. Change of something here, change of something else here. Change of feeling here, change of mind and heart, the deepest part of you over here. Judas, Peter. Peter uh, repents. Repentance, biblically speaking, is a turning from sin to Christ. A turning from sin to Christ with deep sorrow, with deep humility. It's possible only by a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And it enables you therein to love God more than your sin. To love God more than your sin and therein repenting, therein turning. Peter, how do we see this? It's reflected, it's not explicit, but it's reflected, it comes out later in Matthew 26, verses 74 and 75. Then he began to, he, it's Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept Bitterly. So you see these movements with Peter. Peter leaves the courtyard. He goes out into the dark streets of the night there in Jerusalem and finds a place to break down. And he comes apart. He just comes apart. He's shattered. Everything that he thought he knew about himself is untrue. He has just discovered he is a coward. He is a liar. He is a traitor. And he's having to own that. And he's coming apart. He is broken. He is broken. Metanoeo. 
He is broken. And that's what repentance looks like. It is deep, it is true, and it bears fruit, real fruit, real fruit. So earlier, we were reading from Psalm 51. That's the, the context of that, in case you don't know, was David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then his killing Bathsheba's husband to try and cover his tracks. He is confronted by the prophet Nathan, and by God's grace, David repents. Psalm 51 is the record of that. Now, why is that in the Psalter? That's really nasty stuff. Extract children, read that. What, what is this? Yes. That's not just, Psalm 51 is not just an historical artifact. Oh, isn't that interesting? That's how David prayed at the time. No. I mean, it is that, but it is also God's gift to us. Here's how you repent. Here's how you pray. Here's how you turn back from your sin to me. And this is how I will receive you. And I love you so that I'm showing it to you. I'm taking you by the hand and leading you back to me. That's what Psalm 51 is, which then takes us to this. How is such repentance, how is such turning possible? This is what sets Peter apart from Judas. Peter trusted Jesus. Judas did not. He follows, but he does not trust. Peter knows himself to be ultimately safe and secure in Jesus' love. So he knows who's receiving him when he turns back. He's not scared. He's not hesitant. He knows that with Jesus there's no need uh, for, for posturing or pretending or defending He knows that the way is ready and clear for honesty and openness and transparency and repentance, turning. That's how repentance is possible, knowing who it is we're turning to and how it is we will be received. Again, Jesus, Jesus knows knows our wayward hearts and invites us into this path of repentance. Well, that then takes us to the third point, not just why is it needed, why is it necessary, us. What does it look like, this full, deep turning? But where does it lead? Where does it take us? And again, you see that here in the text. It's so simple, it's so obvious, but we ought not to ignore it. Judas. Judas stops with just remorse being sorry. Where does that leave him? In a state of ruin. Verses 3 and through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. We, you know, you think in terms of historical figures, nobody names their children Adolf anymore, or Hitler, or Jezebel, or Judas. I mean, it's, it's, it's these figures, right? You just, those are just names 
But think with me, there was a time Judas was not that in people's eyes, right? This is one of the 12. This is the end of the story for one of the 12. And it is so sobering, so sobering. Judas' reasons, and again, I said this earlier, we don't know all the ins and the outs of why he took the steps that he did in terms of betraying Jesus. We've got a little bit more clarity here. How does he end up hanging from a rope? He has nowhere to go with his sin. He has nowhere to go with his guilt. Oh, he goes to the religious officials, right? And is trying to get them to help him. But they won't have anything to do with him. Again, they've got just what they wanted. And by no means are they ready to go back. They're very happy with what Judas has done. The last thing they're interested in is undoing what's been done. So Judas has gone to the only place that he knows to go, except he's got one more option. He looks to himself, within himself. And he comes up completely empty there. So what's left? Utter despair and ruin. Disintegration. Put a hyphen in there. A disintegration. He's coming apart. Ruin and death. And in his case, quite literally. With Peter, it's just the opposite. Oh, it's painful. But the end result is much different. Not disintegration, but reintegration. Not ruin, but life and recovery, and restoration. Peter's posture, recognizing it was really as horrible as what he did, what it was, was not out of malice, but out of weakness. Out of weakness. And ultimately, he turns not to himself, but to Jesus. But to Jesus. And that's part of Jesus' pursuit of Peter. As to, that's, what, that's what enables this posture on Peter's part, is Jesus' pursuit of his heart. If you want to turn back with you, just a, again, a few hours before, Matthew 26, verses 30 through 32, the word's very easy to, for us to overlook in the reading, most certainly easy to overlook in the original hearing, verses 30 through 32 and when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, no doubt, those men had no ears to hear those words at all. But that's exactly what Jesus did. exactly what he did. He chased after these men who had failed him so miserably. And in particular, when you read the last chapter of John, you see how intentional he is in going after Peter and the restoration 
of that disciple in particular. And it is a, just beautiful, absolutely beautiful to read there. Again, you stop at remorse, surface level, sorrow. Where does that take you? Where does it leave you? Ruin. Repentance is the path to life and restoration with Jesus. Maybe there's a few questions we could ask here just at this point that might be worth considering. Who needs to repent? Who needs to do this? We all do. We all do. When? How often? How frequently? All the time. All of us. All the time. Did you get that? Martin Luther, the great reformer, this was the first of the 95 theses that he nailed on the Wittenberg door. It's there in your quotes and notes. This is what Luther said about this very thing. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's how we make progress in the Christian life. There's a life of faith and repentance. Every day, turning from our sin to Jesus. Turning from our sin to Jesus. We need to repent constantly, continually, all the time, and for all sorts, all matters of things in all kinds of ways. Now, why? Why? It's alluded to earlier. Let me just be more pointed here. Another of the great reformers. So here's Luther over saying, over here saying, the entire Christian life consists of a life of repentance. Just a few years later, John Calvin tells us why. Because our hearts are idle factories. We are constantly coming, we're constantly in a need of repenting, turning from our sin back to Jesus, because we are constantly creating new things and searching for new and novel ways to find our significance and identity and satisfaction in any and everything in the creation, in many, most cases, all good things, but other than the creator. We, our hearts are idle factories continually and constantly in every way. No one here is an exception. And therein over here, we have to constantly live in a life of repentance. So who needs to repent? All of us. And how often? All the time. Jesus knows this. And he calls us to a path of repentance. It's the only way forward. As I said earlier, back to Lewis, sometimes the only way forward is by going full speed astern. Now, I'll just tell you, um, I'm not boasting here, but it's just a fact. I don't get lost often. I don't. I mean, like in, in the sense of finding directions. You know, some of us do and don't. But I don't, usually, don't tend to get lost. I usually kind of bumble my way to, at least to somewhere. Um, it's like a wizard, right? Gandalf, a wizard is never late. He arrives just where he, when he tends to exactly right time, all that. Anyway, so um, one case, though, that stands out in my mind, though, of being quite lost, and it was my fault, 
was uh, Swan's Island, Maine. Some years ago, Sarah and I were staying this little, it's off the coast of Maine. The only way you can get there is by ferry. We're staying at a house owned by some extended family. This is the spring of 1992. And uh, we decide to go off exploring one day, off for a drive. And we head down this deserted road, down through these trees, and we see the beautiful ocean blue out through the, the, the trees. So we decided it'd be fun just to pull over and park the car and take our little dog and go for a walk through the trees and, and go sit by the ocean, which we did for some time. It was great. What was not so great was trying to find the car. This is the spring of 1992. There is no you know, personally owned GPS. There are no smartphones. There are no pagers, if you can imagine. We had the abacus. No, anyway. Um, uh, you can Google that. Those of you who don't know what an abacus is, you can Google that later. Um, so we're trying to find our way back to this road. And I'm just thinking, how hard can it be to lose a road on an island? We did. We managed to lose the road and our car. We eventually, but to do that, to get back, we had to give up pressing on the way we thought we had to go and go back to the beach retrace our steps, and then try again. It's something like that with repentance. You've got to go back to make your way forward. You've got to go backwards to make any progress. Here's, though, here's a problem with the story I just told you. We figured, that all, we figured all that on our, on our own. We did it ourselves. That's not the way repentance works. It's the way I just told the story, I mean, it's the way it happened. There was no one marking the trails for us. There was no one giving us a map. There was no one telling us which way to go and going, us with, us, going with us the whole way. See, that's where the story is not so good. Because that's exactly what Jesus does at every step of the way. At every step of the way, enabling us and guiding us through the process. Such as his knowledge of us and his love for us. He knows the waywardness of our hearts, yours and mine. And he invites us on a path, calls us on a path of repentance. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would help us to grasp what this is we're talking about. Beyond just being sorry but being sorrowful. Not just because of personal consequences, but because of the pain and hurt we've caused you. We ask that you help us to grasp why repentance is needed, that indeed our hearts are wayward. We are constantly falling short of the first and second greatest commands, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ask that you'd help us to grasp how it's possible because of your mercy, because of your goodness. We see it with David. We see it with Peter. Thank you for calling us down this path. Help us to walk it together. We pray in your name. Amen.